Right, Mavis, welcome to episode four of These Little Victories with myself, Jay Fender. Today's guest is a remarkable man, Tim Slesser, a 91-year-old documentarian who started his career with the BBC in 1955. In the podcast, we discuss many things, from him going to school in Australia as a young boy in the 40s with Rupert Murdoch. We also discuss David Attenborough commissioning his first TV documentary uh, in 1955 and how he worked alongside him at the BBC. Uh, and we also discuss his military service in the Navy. We cover many subjects, so it's a really interesting listen and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Now, if you're enjoying the content we're putting out on this podcast, please just hit us a subscribe on YouTube or whatever platform you're streaming on. Um, and if you want to support us further, you can pick up merch at Spirit of Spike Island. But for now, let's get into the podcast and I hope you enjoy it. It is quite interesting, the number of people. I don't say it happens constantly, but every now and again, you know, someone sort of says, read your book, and you say, well, (laughs) not exactly who are you, but out of the blue. That's 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 quite nice, though. Oh yes, that people yes, have yes, you know yes. found 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 your yes, literary yes. work and yes, want yes. to come up and express yes. their admiration for it. How long did that book take you to write? Oh, the your first, first your uh, first book that is. Oh, about six months. Right, and and that was written. That was written in nineteen fifty. 56 into 57 because I think it was published toward autumn 57 right who published that book uh, outfit called Harrops right um, and the one that took me most long the longest was not an expedition at all it's taking taking the Ministry of Defense apart right because um, that had to be very well researched. Of course. Because I was really, the, the name of the book is Lying in R- State. Right. Because uh, I'm accusing them of, you know, well, well, they would. Subterfuge. They wouldn't kind of. even admit to covering up. Mm. That's what it is. They make, they make cock-ups and then they cover up. Because my father was lost in a, the largest single loss of Royal Navy life in World War II uh, in a carrier, which is still the subject of bullshit from what would be what would have been the Admiralty. And that was the was that the HMS Glorious? Yes. Right. Yeah. And and um I believe was that nineteen forty when Yes, yeah, June nineteen forty, very early early in you know First World War hadn't been going a year. Second Second World War, oh, sorry. Correct. Yeah no that's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that where did where did that go down, that shit? Went down Coming back from northern Norway to the UK, so right. it was up and up in the Arctic. Wow! Uh, um, with, is... with two destroyers. Well, no, it shouldn't. It should have just stayed twenty-four hours and come back with the main group. Right. That was where that's where the controversy, the basis of the controversy is. Right. Because it was doing what a nutty idiot captain required it to do and of course there wasn't anybody senior to him in the ship who could say no right so. well so he he decided to 
well, make he, their own he, route. He was, a, he was a submarine hero from World War One, right. and uh, quite unsuited, therefore, to command a carrier because the two is quite different. Of course, carrier is dependent on working with a task force. A submarine is dependent on solo. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, did We're you not recording this, are we? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we are. Yeah, oh. if that's all right. <laughs> I, it's yes. um, how much information were you given about the demise of the HMS Glorious as your father lost his life on it from the military? Uh, and you know, did you? Well, did you, of course, in June 1940, one wasn't told very much. Uh, you know, the civilians. Uh, well, even in the services, you didn't learn very much. You were told what the Admiralty, in, the, in that case, wanted you to know. Yeah. So one wasn't in a position to debate it until 1946 right. or 1945 when the world war had finished. And it's then when the... Because one of the questions being asked right from the very beginning was why was that ship coming back with only two destroyers? When by staying 24 hours off Narvik, northern Norway, she could have come back with Ark Royal and eight destroyers and two cruisers. Right. Uh, you know, a powerful little force. Yeah, of course. Instead of that, the captain of Glorious detached her and uh, came back, was coming back by himself with no um, flying reconnaissance out ahead, with a third of his boilers shut down to save fuel. Etc. Et I mean, the thing was a was a cock up. Yeah, and so the HMS Glorious set off before the fleet. Yes, twenty four hours. Just to sort of wait and see the the the, the people who um, approve of the official story say, "Ah, she was short of fuel." No, she wasn't short of fuel. We know how much fuel she had because she was travelling in company with Ark Royal, and we know that both of them had refuelled in Scapa Flow, right, the far north of, of Scotland, um, on their last trip when they had enough fuel. Well, if, if, if Ark Royal had enough fuel, Gloria certainly did. Yeah. Anyway. No, that's... And what happened to the other two ships? Were they... Oh, they, they were... All three were sunk, sunk within 60 minutes. Oh, my gosh. By, so German U-boats? Uh, no, by Gneisenau, as two German battleships. Gneisenau... And Scharnhorst. Uh, and uh, that, there's a, quite a story in that. But anyway, let's get back to... No, I think that's an interesting story. I'm happy to talk. We've got plenty of time if uh, to explore those bits. If you, you, you seem to be, you know, you seem to know a lot about it. Have you found that... Well, I spent two years researching it. And I've got various people very supportive. I mean, in some senses, the... The support I most value is that of the official naval historian who wrote the official history of the Royal Navy in World War Two, and initially he accepted the official story, but I talked to him and showed him the evidence in which led in a different direction, and he became. Then he started his own research, and he spent a year, not very much contact with me, because he wanted to sort of. Be clean. If and independent yes. of bias. And he, he, he totally supportive. Says this. What, what was his name, the historian? Do you remember? Oh, um, 
Kingsley. I should have done my homework. That's I, right. I'm old and my memory for names. That's is, all right. How old are you at the moment? 91. Right, well, that, that can be forgotten. I can't remember people's names when I met them two minutes ago, so we, we can... Uh... Well, I get postcards from sort of, um, you know, Jack and Jill, and I know exactly who they are, but I can't remember their surnames. I can't look at my, my, my address book. Well, I can, but it'll take 10, 20 minutes looking through, from A to Z through an address book with probably, oh, a thousand or more names in it. So with... Um, the uh, well situation with losing your father at sea. You then went into the navy to do your military service. Oh, my, 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 uh, um, and you know, was, my father was lost in 1940, and my mother, who was Australian-born and comes from a long-standing Australian family, in what part of Australia? Oh, you, well, where was she born? Yeah, where where was her family in Sydney or? Um, well, my umpteen times great grandfather was in the first fleet, seventeen eighty eight, naval lieutenant, and was almost immediately dispatched from mainland Sydney, right? What what is now Sydney was in those days just nothing. Yeah, uh, to take Norfolk Island. Norfolk Island is a small island about. Five or six hundred miles um, east of uh, of Brisbane, okay. and had, according to Cook, Captain Cook, who'd been there eight years before, marvelous pine trees for masts. Remembering that at that time we couldn't get pine masts from North America because they'd kicked us out, right? Um, and um, and flax for sails, so. He was sent to take Norfolk Island with with twenty four convicts and about eight eight marine marines, and he subsequently became the third governor of New South Wales, which was Australia. So my mother used to say, if we went back any further, we'd be Aborigine. Yeah, which we would. Yeah. So uh, I'm sorry, I forget you. No, no. So, so your 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 mother was raised in. Well, no, my mother strangely was born in a small mining town in Western Australia oh. called Kalgoorlie, um, and she was the marriage of her mother and my grandfather. Yeah, my granny and wasn't a great success. He was a mining engineer, and so my granny went back to Melbourne where she had been born. In, and she was born in 1880 and um, was looking for some way of earning a living. She had a very good singing voice. Now, at that time, the most famous Australian on this side was a woman called Dame Nellie Melba. Okay. And Dame Melba from Melbourne. Oh, okay. See? And so my granny was, uh, came to Europe with my, daughter, with my mother and they never went back. Right. So, but my well, they, my granny did go back. So when my father was killed, we were my mother and I went to Australia. So I spent most of the war in Australia. What part? Of, and what were uh, you in Western Australia? Mostly in Melbourne, no. Oh, Melbourne. Yeah, mostly Melbourne. Well, I was at school in a town just south of Melbourne, and I spent all my holidays on a sheep and cattle station, uh, about 150 miles north of Melbourne. And, and got to know a young man, same age as me, same school, same house, same 
called Rupert Murdoch. You're joking. No, I'm not joking. And his mother actually was obviously somewhat embarrassed that he could be going to this very good school in, in Australia, Geelong Grammar. Uh, and this small boy of the same age from England, an evacuee, couldn't afford it. And she, she didn't pay the whole caboodle, but she arranged it. So I went to school with Murdoch, largely paid for by Mrs. Murdoch. Wow. Yes. That's, was and what, what was he like as a small, as a, as a kid? Well, he was a bit nice chap. He wasn't very clever. I'm always slightly surprised that he's done so, so well, so marvelously. But he obviously a very good business brain, of course. Yes. So, so he was from money originally. So his family, he was, he was from money. His family were quite wealthy. Oh well, yes, his father, Sir Keith Murdoch, uh, and I remember he came down to the school and he took. Rupert, me, and Rupert's three cousins, with whom I was always spending the holiday, they, they were the people who came from the sheep cattle station. And went, that was the first Rolls-Royce I ever saw. Wow. <laughs> what, so what, that would have been in, uh, in the 40s? 1940. Yeah. yeah 40, 41, 40. I was at school, at this school. If you tell Australians today, I went to Geelong Grammar, they sort of, it's rather like saying I went to Eton. Oh, okay. Oh, oh we don't okay. need you. Right. You know, push off. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But I was there from 1940 to 1945 because the moment the war was over, my mother wanted me to get back. Come back to the UK. So I was sent back in a carrier, uh, looked after by a small detachment of Royal... I mean, when I say looked after by a small detachment of Royal Marines, they, they had proper duties, but amongst other things, keep an eye on that young... On that lad. So, so you, would you have been about 14 at that point when you came uh, back? Yeah, I think I was about 13 or 14. 1945, I'd have been 13 or 14, yes. Right. So and did I, your mum not come back with you at oh, that yes, point? Oh, yes, my mother. So you came, came back, back together? No, no, she came oh. back in a, in a normal ship. But she wanted me to get back as quickly as possible. And there were, I mean, we had relatives in England who would look after me before she got back. So, yeah, so then I went to school here. And where did you go to school when you got back to London? I went to school called Malvern oh. in Worcestershire. Oh, okay. Yes. And then, you see, when I came to do my national service, I, I went for the Royal Marines because I knew a bit about them. I'd been looked after by them. Okay. So, so the fact that your, your, your father had perished and there had been a subsequent cover-up didn't deter oh, you? But that didn't... I didn't become aware of that till many years later. Okay. Many, many years later. Right. There were certain aspects on the official story which just somehow worried me, didn't really ring true. And so I started some research, and one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. And I spent two years researching that and talk, talking to people, you know, and making long-distance calls to people all over the world right. about this and that and the other. And... Um, Yes, that was all quite a bit later. Right. Because I think that that book, Lying in State, uh, I'm trying to think when it was published. I should have done my homework. That's all right. But it was published about 20 years ago. Okay. It was published in 1982. It was published coincident with our quite separate, uh, 
our intrusion into Iraq and Iran. So the early 90s, 1992, because from what I've read, you retired from the BBC in 1990, and then you went on to release Lying in State. So... What do you know more about it? Well, dates, they can all get jumbled up, but I think it was in the 90s when that was first published. Um, But going going back to... We'll come back to that in a little while. Mm. But did did you ever uh, have anything... Uh, did you ever, book, you know, see Rupert Murdoch after you know spending time? No, I don't with... think I ever did. Well, he used to come up and stay with his cousins. You see, the three brothers on the sheep and cattle station. Okay, um, two were older than me, and one was younger. And their mother was Rupert Murdoch. Was Elizabeth Murdoch's sister? Okay. Rupert, in other words, Rupert was their nephew. Right. <laughs> right. And you, when you, once you came back to England, you didn't ever see him again. He was. I think the last time I ever saw him was at his at his aunt's because it was a third sister who married a naval officer, which is how to come the whole thing connected. Yeah. Um, in Chelsea, the last time I saw him, we were both. I think he was at Oxford. Okay. And I was at Cambridge. I think he quit on Oxford. Morris, when his father died. Uh, so that he could get back to Australia and start running, running the business. Okay, so his so his family business was always to do with Newspaper. newspapers, yeah. news corp. His father was a journalist. Yeah. Okay, and then he kind of picked up the mantle and yes. and ended up yeah. buying all the yes. setting up yes. other papers yes. and yes. taking. Yeah, yes. wow. Yes, he's a powerful man. <laughs> yes, a, you could say that. Yeah. Um, so you joined the navy. As to do your service as a marine, I did. Yes, yes, and um, you were posted in Malaya. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I, I went into the Marines, and then I I was sort part of the Marines that, in a sense, really mattered was the commando brigade. Right, and I thought, well, I was too light and I wasn't powerful enough. I did had good stamina. And so I had to go at it, and nobody was more surprised than I was right. <laughs> when I was accepted. Okay. And um, then I thought I'd have a go for a commission. So and I got, I got, I got to, yeah, I became a lieutenant. It was extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary. And then I was sent to Malaya. Well, I was going to Korea, but they changed their mind. Right. And, and, um, so how long did it take you once you joined the navy uh, and sat in your uh, in your service? Mm-hmm. How long was it before they they promoted you to that rank? Uh, well, I think it was about you did you were training for a year and then you could then you could your basic training is that yeah, yes yes our training the marine training was twice as long as the army training. So it's not that basic. <laughs> okay, no, you know it wasn't that basic. And then um, I forget whether I went to somebody and said, I'd like to have a go get a commission. Or someone said to me, I think you ought to... But in any case, because it's a long time ago, I forget the details. Um, I did uh, five months, I think, with the army, a place called Eaton Hall up in Cheshire. Okay. Which is where they trained their um, privates... To become officers. Okay. And um, 
So it was based based because the Marines didn't have big enough sort of backup to train one or two. There were only one or two ever commissioned. I think in in twelve years there were about six um, national service lieutenants. Okay, um, and then it was sent to Malaya, uh, which was uh, you know I mean that was full full blown uh, active service. And, was it a shock to the system when you got out there? Because obviously, well, you've, no, you've... you knew what was coming. Okay. Well, I suppose I, difficult. I suppose you know it was it, sort of everything was new, and you had. Had you? But, you but, 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 I guess the only benefit, the benefit of you coming from Australia as, and experiencing the heat in Australia in the summers, the humidity over there. Do you think that that prepared you for being no, in that kind of climate? Because, no, because that part of Australia down in Victoria and Melbourne, um, you know, yes, it could get hot, but it's it's not it's not upset. It's not uh, abnormally so. Um, perhaps if you were up in Northern Territory or Queensland, it might. Right. But, um, it was quite useful. I mean, many, many years later, when I realised that Australia was coming up to its sort of 200th birthday, you know, I was able to go to the boss and say, look, we ought to do something. And that was the, in those days, the BBC was much... Well, it was, had more, more money. And he just said, right, go. So within a week or two weeks, I was in Australia... That's setting the thing up. I don't think that has happened today. No. So that's quite an. Int- so we'll we'll jump over to that. So you, uh, in you finished university at Cambridge. You you done your active service. You went to university from in- school. Okay. And after that, I went to Cambridge. Cambridge, and you and did a three-year that, degree in geography. Yes, which was enough to keep you occupied, but not enough to get in the way. Right, <laughs> and then. As a result, as a consequence of that, you we uh, went on that expedition where we set off to see if we could, and uh, we were we were we were lucky because the the uh, the, um, uh, the the weather uh, was particularly favourable that year. They didn't get heavy, very heavy monsoon rains, okay. which made would have made life difficult crossing a lot of rivers in northern Burma where there are no bridges. Um, and just, ju- just for every, anybody who's watching, yes. uh, who might not know your backstory, so Tim uh, went on a six-man expedition using two Land Rovers right. uh, to travel from Europe to Singapore. Entirely by land. Entirely by land. There was one ten-minute saltwater crossing where there was no bridge or no way of getting, which was the Bosphorus, uh, Istanbul, where you went from European Turkey, 10 minutes, to Asiatic Turkey. There is now a bridge. Okay. There has been a bridge for about 30, 40 years. But in our day, that, that was that was the one sea crossing, if you like, salt water crossing. And did you have any funding for that? Was that part of the BBC documentary um, team at that partly, point? Partly we were commissioned by the young producer in the BBC called Attenborough, um, David Attenborough yes. commissioned that. Yes, and he gave us enough money. Uh, I think he gave us three hundred pounds, or caused the BBC to give us three hundred pounds, with which we could buy a camera, a film camera. Yes, and he gave us uh, sort of uh, not as a gift, but it didn't cost any 
any enough film to get us to um, to Lebanon to Beirut. Okay. And send back what you shot on the first seven eight weeks of your journey. Right. If I like what I see, I will send you some more film. And again, we commissioned a film, and a group of undergraduates from Oxford and Cambridge turned up in the office and said they were posing to drive from London to Singapore. They sounded as though they knew what they were talking about, and I thought we'd take a risk and give them some film. So he did like what he saw, and he did send us some more film, and so we had to, then we got picked up more film in India, and we had enough film to get. So we that resulted in four, uh, I think, half hours uh, on uh, episodes for for half hour episodes. Is yes, it? on. There wasn't B, it wasn't BBC One because it was just the BBC. There wasn't of course. BBC Two. There was no distinction because there was only one channel. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And uh, and ITV only started in about, I'm guessing a bit, but about 1956 or 57. Right. And this was 55. It wasn't going when we left. I think it was going when we got back. Right. Okay. And how long was the entire journey from from... Setting from here off. to there, yes, about six months, and um, it was twelve thousand miles. Is that about right? Well, right? Well, yes, I think actually our mileage on the car on the clock, so to speak, was rather more, right? Because we were making diversions and things, <clears throat> but it would be difficult to do it much more quickly because the, the governing factor is not so ha not so much how many miles you can ca ca cover in a day or a week, it's the seasons. So you don't want to leave here in the middle of winter. Right. Because by the time you get to Central Europe, uh, you know, the snows may be quite... Well, in those days before, we had good snow plows and all the rest of it. The, um, the winter would set in. And or if you went at some other time, you'd have to wait till the... You'd, you'd, be, you'd get to the Far East coincident with the monsoon, so you'd have to wait. So the governing factor was the climate. Right, not, not the road conditions or lack of that. Right, and, and the the climate basically dictated how fast, how quick your progress yes, was. Because when we got to when we when we got to India, uh, we um, sort of marked time in Calcutta for about four or five weeks till the monsoon had finished. Right, and we could then proceed on. Okay, that's so, interesting. So the duration was not so much how. Our, dur our durability or our stamina, it was clim climatic. How did you um, pitch the idea of the, um, the, 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 the series to Attenborough at the BBC? Did you have a relationship with him beforehand? No. But did you have somebody who contacted the BBC and you were put on to David? Or how did that come about? That, yeah, I, I forget the exact details, but remember in those days, we're talking of 1955, Attenborough was not a well-known name. No, of course not. Um, no, no, no. And uh, but I think you we wrote to somebody in the BBC and said, you know, we've got this possible possible idea we think it would make good. Because one of, one of the crew, one of us, was three years older than the rest of us and had started a camera shop uh, for the photographic business in Cambridge. So he did know a little bit about it. and um, He knew what the, 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 the gentleman who... Had the camera shop knew a little bit about how to pitch to the BBC, or do you well, mean knew how to no, operate I think the, the I camera? Just a little bit about photography and uh, you know, what, 
how, how, how you adjusted the camera of according course. to the strength of light. And yeah, that. yeah, sim- of course. Simple stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know who put us on to Attenborough. I think probably he had some kind of a travelly uh, output and we probably thought, oh, well, he's the obvious person to write to. Right, of course. So uh, it just... That's interesting. Yes, because it's a friendship, which in a sense still... I was trying to think the other day of an excuse to write to him. You can't just write, sort of say hello. Yeah. um, Yeah, Well, it'd be nice for you to reach out and connect again. Yes, yes. Well, I will, I will, I will. I think, um, yeah, it's uh, such an exceptional history and it's almost the genesis of documentary making uh, on television. It was early days, you see, it was... um, uh, I'm trying to think. No, later, when I did a series about the American West, yeah, that was the first travel, travelly sort of thing shown on the new channel, BBC Two, nineteen spring of nineteen sixty four, I think. BBC Two started. And once, you, once you got back from Singapore, yeah. did you? One question: Did you leave the Land Rovers there? No, no, no. We we drove. From the French coast to Singapore, when we got to Singapore, <coughs> we sort of uh, marked time or recovered, if you like, for two or three weeks, and then it was not practical to drive back no. that way. So we shipped from Singapore to Calcutta, which right. is not, you know, we, 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 and then we drove back from Calcutta, a rather different route. Right, we, we went through northern Afghanistan and northern Iran. Persia, what was more commonly called Persia. In this yeah, place. yeah. And uh, so we didn't. We tried not to just re- repeat the route that we'd taken. Yes, yeah, so you out. see different places, Signed different routes. And um, at any uh, point on the journey there or back, were there any hairy moments where you thought this is a little bit like uh, untoward, or was there anything that stands in northern, out? In, somewhere in Thailand, northern Thailand, we. Managed to turn one of the vehicles over on its side. Um, it skidded and just went over. Um, no, I think we were very lucky. Mind you, although it's a bit conceited to say it, <coughs> we were quite well organised. Okay. Uh, each person, there were six of us. Yeah. Three per Land Rover. Yeah. And there'd be one was the photographer, cameraman. Yes. One was a diarist and sort of second yeah, as I say, second in command, but yes. that was me. And then there was someone who looked after the route and the visas and the political permissions. Almost like a producer, kind of, to, yes. to, yeah, 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 to make we, things. We each had a job, and technically we didn't have a leader. Um, whatever problem came up, depending on the nature of the problem, was one of us who was particularly sort of, that was his, that was his thing. Right. And, and, uh, and we I'm, were very well looked after by people on the route, you see, because they were quite intrigued yeah. by this bunch of six amateurs coming through. On one, one Land Rover painted dark blue for Oxford and the other painted light blue for Cambridge. That's wonderful. Well, it, well yeah. it must have been like... Well, there were five of us. Aliens were, coming through, you know, there were see people just driving through, you know, six English guys in two Land Rovers just driving through their city. Yeah, it must yeah, have been quite unique. Yeah, because, for example, when we got to northeast India, Assam, which is where a lot of the tea... Where a lot Correct, of, where, Assam where tea. Where tea comes from. That's right. Um, you know, they were very intrigued by, 
you've driven all the way from England? Goodness, and yes, they were. And and they, you know, you must come and stay with us. And so <laughs> we weren't. Um, we were very warmly welcomed. And so the hospitality yes. along the route was yes. very nice. Yes, marvelous. But in fact, I doubt it would be possible now to do that, because the world has um, has, has uh, divided itself against itself, uh, and there are plenty of places now where you will not be allowed to cross the frontier. So this journey um, is both um, a wonderful journey in the sense that you are discovering the unknown, but it's also a journey uh, which I don't think could be made again today, and certainly not in the gay, sort of happy-go-lucky cavalier spirit that these chaps did it in. Fantastic. So then so you you got back... And then you started with the BBC. Yeah, yeah, started with the BBC. Uh, uh, I did they just radio? Off- oh, oh, okay. In schools, radio. Uh, was a was a job offered to you once you returned, or did you no, then I think? Th- I think I was in in Tehran, in in Iran, in Persia, uh, in the English or the British reading room, part of the embassy. There was a copy of the Listener. Magazine. Okay. And there was somewhere on the back pages there was an advertisement for a producer of geography programs in the, in the BBC schools department. Right. So I thought, oh well, health spells were put in for this. Yeah, because um, you had a degree from Cambridge yes. in, in geography. But um, I had to subsequently write about ten days later saying, forget it, because I won't be back in time for an interview or anything, and I'm not quitting this expedition to. No. And they wrote back and said, oh, don't worry, we're not about to make an appointment. Give us a shout when you're back. So I gave them a shout when I'm back, went for an interview and got the bloody job. Well, undoubtedly, the fact that I had just done, a, you know, a practical piece of geography, drive from London, well, from the French coast to Singapore, obviously helped yeah. um, a bit. And... Um, Sorry, one other question about your journey to Singapore. Where did where did you start? Where was the starting point from well, that expedition? Start, we flew from Lim, which is down on the coast, uh, Dungeness. Where, sorry, Dungeness. You know, d- down in 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 Kent. I think. Okay, yeah, yeah, Kent or Sussex. Because in those days, you could, if you had the money, fly your car across the Channel in a a Bristol freighter aircraft, and um, so we dro- we we flew. We drove from London to um, Lim in Kent, flew across the Channel to I think uh, I forget whether it was actually the, uh, the I think it was the, the two K rather than Calais. But anyway, I mean then from there, that's where, where we that's, count. That's that was where, where the that, that's this where is the start. starting point. That's where we start. Okay, and we. We tried very hard to find some way around the Bosphorus, somewhere not to go across the from east in Istanbul, not okay. to have to take a ferry. Uh, but that was the one place in the whole journey where we sort of had to. Take I think a that's uh, yeah allowed, permitted. Um, so, so just jumping back to the BBC. So you yeah. you got your you got your start after you've done this documentary and. Uh, your expedition to Singapore. Right. You then came back and were, there was almost like a radio job uh, waiting yes, for you yes. because you'd already applied yes. for it. I w- well, you see, they weren't putting the film together until we got back. 
Yes, editing it together. Yeah, yeah. And how long were you in radio before you then started looking into documentary making? Um, not as long as I should have been. About two, two and a half years. Okay. But um, were you always... Schools, schools television didn't start until 64. Okay. Uh, or 63, I can't remember. Right. And then did you have to learn your trade? Was there a training process that the BBC offered when you... Was. I think there was a few courses going, but it was really a question of sort of watching other people. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the business of making documentaries, I don't know about these days, but in those days, was in the editing. You know, you shot the thing on the basis that this is what... And then you, then subsequently, when you got back to base, you edited it. Yeah. Um, and that's probably where as much skill in doing a decent edit as doing a decent... Job filming suit. it. Yeah, because you create narrative in the yes, edit. Yes, yes. Um, and that's, that's a skill yes. in itself. Well, it was learning as you went along. And um, so you, 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 your film would be edited by a professional editor mm -hmm. so that too was a great help yes absolutely yes long um, time ago <laughs> so um at that point you started with the bbc and you were part of the documentary team and let's have a look and i moved on from schools television to yep. or grown up television if you like okay and one of was the it, controllers was, was attenborough ah Okay, so you already had that connection yes, with David I had Attenborough. That connection a bit. Yes. Okay, and um, and what was the progression from the BBC Schools TV shows that you were making into um, adult documentaries well, with David? How did that happen? That when 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 BBC School Schools Television started, I did. I never been to the North America. Okay, but I did eight or nine programs. I think they were only 20-minute programs. They may have been half an hour. Uh, sort of ge the geography of North America. Right. So, you know, we did a program about New York, and, we did, and some weeks later we were in the middle of the High Plains, you know, very empty country. We did that. And that's sort of where, that's where I became fascinated by, by the American West. Okay. It, and then some years later... When I had moved on from from schools to ordinary television, I put up this idea it was of doing five programs about about the West. Right. So you you had that experience from the BBC schools, yes. Um, yes. like educational yes. programs yes. that you'd yes. put together. Yes. Um, yes. W were they filmed in the fifties? Those educational. What the ones in about America? The school, yeah, the schools. Well, schools television didn't really start till I think it was 1963, 64. Ah, okay. So would that? Okay, sure. And then you moved. So and then. Then I moved to normal sort of to general documentary. And is that when you then pitched the idea to do your documentary for the work for for yes, and then put up the idea of doing five. Documentaries about the American West. The original title was "It's More Than Cowboys." Because people would say to me, "Oh, West to Cowboys," to which I would say, "Yes, it's cowboys, but a hell of a lot else besides cowboys." Of course. Um, yes, and uh, and then I, I wrote a book on it as well. But a bit a bit later, a bit later, I wrote a book after after 
after I'd had a row with the bo- boss. And <laughs> yeah, was that one of the last things that you did before you left the beat? Because you handed it in your re- resignation due to an oversight uh, from what, well, it seems like an oversight from your the boss of BBC One, one of the commissioners. Yes. We talked about this briefly when we were driving over here. So you've done this documentary that uh, about, the would it be classed as the Midwest in America, the the, the, the documentary that started BBC Two? Is that the right, um, right documentary? Oh, gosh. I don't think it'd be called the Midwest. No, I think it would be the West. The Midwest becomes the West on various people's definitions, but the definition that I use and most people use is, I think it's either the 90th or the 100th meridian. Okay. Uh, where you move from fair number of trees out onto the plains where there's really the trees on the watercourses, but otherwise it's okay. wide open spaces. Well, at one state, Wyoming, today... It's the size of Great Britain. has a population of rather just over half a million. So, you know, there's yeah. not many people. Yeah. It's, and yeah. that's one of the sort of fascinations of the place. So your documentary, w- w- the working title was It's Not Just Cowboys. Uh, it's More Than Cowboys. It's More Than Cowboys. Yeah. Okay. What did that actually, what was that released? What was the title when it came out? When it came out. Uh, what was the title? Um uh, West is West. West is West. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, was 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 that was that the last documentary you made for the BBC before you left? Before you handed in your resignation. Um, I yeah yes probably probably because was, I was going to go off to the I I did go to the Arctic and I did the reconnaissance and I did the setting up when I got back it's rather powerful. The dreaded woman, Grace Wyndham Goldie, stepped in and said, no, you know, I, I, I was not involved. She, she said of herself, she wasn't involved, and no, your BBC One appointment. And West is West was the first documentary aired with BBC Two, is that correct? I think it was the first travel documentary, yes. And, and it was at the, the launch of the yes, channel. Because, because David Attenberg was mostly on BBC One. Okay. Yes. And so BBC Two was launched with um, your travel documentary about um, about the West, about the West in America. Yes, and it was very well received and a popular yes, show. Yes, and as a result, you were then you Went pe- on the reconnaissance reconnaissance the under the approval yes. of people at BBC Two to go to the Arctic and do yes. a documentary about the Arctic. Yeah. And when you returned... I got got shot you, down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by by uh, one of the uh, commissioning yes. Um, yes. Uh, editors at, at the BBC, uh, yes. BBC One. And at which point you uh, locked horns and what happened at this point? Well, I, I could have and quit. Went in with a letter of resignation and... Um, I had to work out my notice. I think I had to work out three months. I, I can't remember whether it was three months or six months. Uh, and then I went off with my wife and two small children to a place called Shadron, Nebraska, and had a wonderful year uh, trying to teach English. <laughs> right, Chadron, Nebraska. That must have been a gear change. 
from the a, a real gear change from the hustle and bustle of London going out oh, yes, to someone. Yes, yes, I, I mean, yes, I don't yes. know it, but I'm presuming it's quite rural. Oh, it's, very. Yes, it's um, spaces. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. And when but you they take... They were interested in me and I was interested in them, so, you know. Yeah, it must have been... A real gear change. Was there no resistance from the BBC to try and keep you after you've op given so much good? You know, the documentary was well received. Well, West I is think West. There was a and certain amount of discussion, but they didn't sort of actually step in. Um, I think a man called Peacock was the controller of BBC Two, and he was the person who'd said, "I like what you do now. What what do you want to do?" Okay. And next, and that was when I said I want to go to the Arctic, and I went to the Arctic. When I got back from the Arctic. I, the row developed. That, you know, you're not you're not a BBC Two producer. You're a BBC One producer. We let you go to help launch the channel, and um, the thing fell apart. In as much was it, as that. was it a bureaucracy thing, a power move, or was it because they just wanted you to focus solely on BBC One? It feels I don't I, know. Uh, well, I don't know. I think there was a certain amount of rumbling behind the scenes, which didn't actually involve me directly, in as much as. This woman, Grace Wyndham Goldie, didn't appreciate the Michael Peacock, the controller of BBC Two, having any kind of sway. Sway, and uh, so she wanted to establish herself. Um, yes, that's a shame. A amount of, well, that happens in most businesses. Absolutely, it? there's it's always bit undercurrents that you don't know about it at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, um, yes. that's interesting. So, so you went to. So then I went into into documentaries and did that one, did other ones, did worked on um, looking at Britain, the helicopter series about this country. Absolutely, but um, that 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 was. So you, how long did you spend in Nebraska whilst you were there for? I was in Nebraska for a year. Yep. And then I teaching English and journalism, a public television station in Syracuse, New York. Yeah. Two years. What were you doing at that station? I was doing documentaries. Okay. Um, I can't can't remember what documentaries I did when I was. I think they were much more local. Okay, much more local. Um, yes. And how long were you at PBS for in uh, Syracuse? Two, two years. Two years. Well, just yeah. Two years, but bar a month or two. Yes, and then I came back, and I went to work for uh, ITV. Because Peacock, the boss of BBC Two, had transferred to ITV. Right. So he gave me a job, and that lasted about a year, and then I went back, not on staff in BBC, but on contract. Okay. 13-part documentary. Um, well, I did three of them. Th oh, okay. So three of the 13 where the... Was was the, the documentary exclusively shot? From a helicopter? Yes, entirely from a helicopter. All, all footage? All footage. There was nothing shot from the ground at all. Okay. And um, it got to about the 11th or 12th other people were doing, and it was, what shall we do for the 13th? And I sort of stepped forward and said, you start in the Scilly Isles. Right. And you finish at the far northern tip of Shetland. Right. And the, uh, that'll cost a bit of money. I said, well, yes, it will, but it make it. So that was one of the most, when I say most marvellous things I've ever done, I don't mean that it reflected on me. I mean, it was interesting beyond measure for me. Of course. 
starting the cities and finishing Shetland. How many people were on the helicopter? Uh, usually the pilot, me, and the cameraman. Right. Um, and the assistant cameraman and the researcher or sort of general administrator would travel by vehicle. Okay. So the team come the evening was about five people. Right. That's, and, and when when these programmes went out yeah. on BBC One or Two and um, like millions of people would have been watching them because there were only a few channels. The choice wasn't huge, like it is today right, when it's thousands. Right. There it's, wasn't so much it, competition. Yeah, it's not as diluted. Back right. then there was a lot more focus and you know, it was a lot more streamlined. And there was How a lot did it? More money. Well, there was a lot more money in it. Yeah. Yes. How, how did it feel seeing your programs going out on TV to so many people? Oh, well, well <laughs> didn't do the ego any harm. Yeah, of course. Um, no, and um, you know, people would occasionally recognise you, rather like you. I reckon on the street yesterday, yeah. and um, yes. Towards the back end of your career at the BBC, you were. Um, in well, more, toward, more of a commissionary role. You, yes, you were commissioning became, documentaries. Yeah, officially, the, I'm trying to think. A H D, assistant head documentary. A H G D, assistant head general documentaries. In other words, I didn't do art, right, and didn't do science, but did general documentaries. Okay, and, and was uh, that based at the head? Actually, there was a fellow called the head of the, quit or right from when, and a fellow called Will Wyatt, who's just recently retired from the BBC. Okay, he was uh, he's about twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years younger than I am. He was appointed as the head of the department, and I was number two. And was that based at the te television centre? Uh, that was based at the television centre, White City. Uh, well, it was based partly at television centre and partly at a place nearby called Kensington House. Okay. Um, and uh, eventually I realised uh, the fun and interest was not in sending other people off to do the interesting things. Was yeah. And do them myself. So I quit a little ahead of, um, I think you, you had to quit the BBC at 60. Okay. I think I quit a few years ahead. Okay. In order to go freelance and get back going to interesting places instead of sending other people to interesting places. Of course. That's interesting. Um, and, and, and once you had left the BBC in 1990, you know, I, you wrote a couple of books, I believe, and did you do any further documentaries beyond that? What, uh, whilst you, well, yes, I you... did. I can't remember what they were, though. Okay. I think it was mostly... I think I pretty much quit in 1990. Because I was, how old was I in 1990? I was, you know, well, I was born in 1930, so I was, it was 60. Right. So, um, yes, I turned then to writing, because I did write a certain amount for magazines and papers. Right. And is that when you had uh, two books come out, 
Um, they didn't come out simultaneously. They no, there was the one about the government, and it was a bit of a polemic well, what, on I the Iraq the, War. Yeah, the most recent one, well, most recent, 20, 25 years old, was um, <laughs> attacking, if I can use the word, it was, the uh, Ministry of Defence. Yeah. For getting so much, for covering up. They were justified in the world in the world in the war of covering up, but once the war was finished, well, they were stuck with the cover up because you can't, you know. Then then there's a covering up the cover up. Yeah, of course. And that's that book was called Lying in State. That, that was called Lying in State. It was originally called because uh, MOD Ministry of Defence was originally called Ministries of Deception. Right. MOD. Right. But uh, for some reason, the publisher didn't like that. It's it? What it should have, its title is lying in state. What it's, and that, this is a thought that only occurred to me some years later. It should have read lying dash in state. Right. Which is much more convincing than lying in state because people didn't quite get the pun in some cases. Of, they of, thought it was actually some yeah, death. body. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes. Who published that book for you? Um, well, basically, an outfit called Signal. But um, uh, see, I get confused because there's several editions. Okay. And it's like First Overlands. I think there's nine or ten editions of that. If you count German, Portuguese, Spanish, uh, book club, it's sort of. So, so your expedition book, First Overland, was first published in... 1957. And it's still in print today? Uh, yes. You can go to... Um, what's the big bookshop? Um, Waterstones. Right. And, uh, and ask them, as I did the other day, because I give away quite a lot, you see. Okay. I thought, I've only got three copies left. I better get some more. So I went to Waterstones. I could have done it myself, but I'm lazy and said get me uh, 10 copies of which they did that's nice. i had to pay the full price rather than the sort of author's discount because i was so bloody lazy right i'd get them to do it yeah I've, i find as advancing age you become lazy well that's all right <laughs> and did and then lying in state is still available is it to, for people to purchase uh, i'm not sure about lying in state uh, I've only got four copies of that left, and it's, that's a good question. And I was thinking the other day, that, come on, get your finger out. You, you need to get more copies. I think uh, Amazon. You can get it on Amazon. Is the, is a great rep repository of these. So you spent so much time at the BBC in what would be the halcyon period, I would say. You know, obviously. Well, looking the, back on it, yes, compared to today. Yeah, there was more money. So more today, money. You look, I don't want to run down the BBC because they were very good to me over many years. But you look at the BBC and you know, there's a preponderance, not preponderance would be too harsh a word, but think of all the panel shows, you know. So, I, you know, come 6.30 most evenings or many evenings, I say, well, what's on tonight? Yeah. So Because what is on and when it's on will depend on when I have my supper yeah. or we'll bugger it. I'll go out for supper to a yeah. restaurant. Yeah. So, but, so what, what What's would I on? be missing if I do that? And, 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 you know, for most of the time between sort of six and 
10, it's sort of, call it lightweight, no, but it's sort of rather repetitious mm. and, 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 um, and, and panel shows, each of which is very good in its own right. There's just too many. I think it's quite remarkable that you, you know, you you went to school with Rupert Murdoch. Um, <laughs> that's crazy. I don't think he'd think it was remarkable. No, I keep trying to think of a good excuse to write to him. Dear Rupert, he was known as Boop. Boop. B-O-O-P, Boop Murdoch. Why was, he, why was he called Boop? I don't have no idea. Just as a nickname. That's okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, and then obviously you 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 you, you had a, a a strong working relationship with David Attenborough and yeah. yeah. I don't know about the strong working. We knew I you know he he knew who I was and and I've been to his place for supper and he'd been to restaurants. He lives as you said earlier in Richmond. Yeah, and I live in. In Southfields, in Southfields, near Wimbledon. That's right. When I had the car, it was sort of ten minute drive. Yes, that's remarkable. I'm, and, and I'm guessing the the modern TV format you you feel is a little bit kind of repetitious and dumbed down, and there's not as much money in it. And well, I, I feel rather sympathy with the directors and producers because they don't have the money. And I think of, you know, I was lucky. I could go to the boss and say, I've just realised that next year Australia will be 200 years old. Surely the BBC ought to be recognising that in some kind of a series, yeah. documentary series about Australian history. And, and, and you know, and he, he would say, ah, yeah, good point. You know, off you go. Off you go. How would it be structured? Would they just give you a budget? And how many people were behind the decision to well, validate it, to, to approve it, sorry, not validate No, I was lucky, lucky, lucky. Came at, it was there at the right time. Yeah. I think it would be much more difficult today. Yeah. Well, I know it is more difficult today, and it isn't, isn't the money. You couldn't go to the boss, whoever he might be today, and say, you know, Australia's 200 years old. Let's go. Or I want to do a series about the American West, or... Um, let's get a helicopter and do a series. Well, that that's a bit unfair because that was that was rather more at the corporate level. Right. Out of and out of everything you've worked on, what do you think is the crown jewel of your career? <laughs> like, if there's something that you're most proud of, because you've done some exceptional well, I think things. The American West, I'm quite proud of. Yeah. Um, I, I would have to emphasize quite. I'm not, you know. Um, my daughter went, I once said to my daughter something I was proud of and she said no you're not proud of you're bloody conceited (laughs) (laughs) I congratulated her on being sort of sufficiently uh, direct direct yes I felt that I had something to do with that, given that I was her father. Oh, well, there so you go. Even, even, so, I, so I said, I'm quite proud that you uh, make that ki- kind of direct comment. Absolutely. Well, Tim Slesser, it's been an absolute privilege talking to you. We'll wrap mm. it up. and. Um, well, thank you very much. No. Yeah, I haven't uh, performed terribly well. But no, you've been, you've been great. Well, thank you for your questions, which... 
allowed me to burble on. No, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you.